Welcome to Truth Transistor Radio. This is the most awesomest podcast of all time. I'm your host, Rob Hendrick. This podcast is brought to you by Proverbs 1618. Hello, Truth Transistors. Welcome to episode number 42, where we will talk about the final judgment and the new heavens and the new earth. And I know this is parallel to uh, previous, I believe, um, talks that we've done, um, but that's okay. So we'll be getting into that. Uh, First, I wanted to talk about a documentary I saw uh, a couple weeks ago, I guess, and it's called um, The Missionary, and it was put out by National Geographic, (laughs) not a Christian uh, channel or whatever, but there were some things I noticed about it. If you haven't seen it, it's about a guy who had a heart for the people in um, Senatal Senatal Island, I think it's called, south of India. And basically, it's the only unreached peoples by the modern world, if that makes sense. Um, They are very territorial. And and he saw a documentary about them, and he said, you know, they need Jesus too, and he felt called to go. And he went, and I guess... You know, they didn't really explain how, but I guess he went there twice. The first time, he didn't really get to the shore. And um, he held up his Bible uh, and he started to... Um, they were there kind of in a defensive stance on the on the shore. And he was on his boat and he didn't know what else to do. There, he, he didn't know the language. I don't think anybody really knows their language. But he started preaching the gospel in English. Now, this may sound foolish to a lot of people, but he was probably thinking of the book of Acts, where the apostles were preaching and everybody heard it in their own language. Now, I'm not a Pentecostal. I'm not a charismatic, but I do believe the Bible is true. And so I, I have no problem with, with what he was doing there. <clears throat> Um, as far as that goes. And apparently he went back and I guess he left a diary or something from that first experience. But the second time he went, he never came back. And somebody says, according to the documentary, his body was seen from a distance on the shore. Now, some of the details they were giving, I was like, how do they know this? Like if he died on the shore, like, you know, And they couldn't verify that it was him from a distance, but I don't know. But anyway, the well, I forgot to mention the first time he was there, they actually threw spears at him and it hit the Bible. You know, the one of the spears was like in front of him and it blocked this, you know, blocked a spear from hitting him and killing him. And, uh, he felt like this was a sign, so he came back again. 
Now, some people might say, yeah, it's a sign that you shouldn't go back, you know. <clears throat> now, I, I'm, I wanted to talk a little bit about National Geographic's perspective because they had a very hostile view of missionary work. And it's, they compared missionary work to colonialization, which I think is ridiculous. Colonialization is basically settling on land to gain economically and make a living and do all that. And it sometimes went along with slavery and taking over other, you know, groups, land and all this stuff. And it's usually sanctioned by uh, the leader of a nation or an empire or whatever. But a missionary work is settling in and becoming a part of their culture and reaching out and connecting to them so that you can preach the gospel, right? And it's, you know, every missionary group is different. There's good and there's bad. But for the most part, it's not about invading them or pushing your view on them. It's just sharing the gospel with them, which is what we were commanded to do by Jesus in the book of Acts. He goes, go out and tell all nations about, you know, the gospel. So, um, so that is definitely something we are called to do. And there's also a misconception, and I, you, you've probably heard this a lot before, that they are enforcing white culture on people. But the stupid thing is about that, um, and maybe they're just ignorant to it, but Christianity is not a white religion. It just so happens that Europe and Western civilization, America, was Christianized, so to speak. But it's not, it, that's not where it originated from. There is kind of this conspiracy theory that it was a Roman uh, emperor that started Christianity. And I can't remember the, uh, the name of that guy that they say did. But that doesn't make sense when you dig into it because... Basically, the idea is that they did it to control the Jewish people. But if they're going to do that, why would they create a religion where you are not allowed to bow down to the emperor? <laughs> you know, so to me, that doesn't make any sense. And plus, they were persecuting Christians for hundreds of years before they, quote unquote, adopted Christianity as the uh, as the na national or empire religion or whatever. And I would argue that it never was, you know, the Roman Catholic Church was never true, uh, truly from God. It was just used to control people in a different way, since they couldn't kill them off and it continued to grow despite all that. So anyway, I'm getting sidetracked here. But, <clears throat> but um, this young man, and I forget his name now, I believe it's in his, uh, and he's like half Asian, and I don't remember his name offhand, sorry, but you can look it up. I have full respect for him. This is a guy who gave up his life to preach the gospel to others, and he was not coming in there hostile, you know, he was not coming in there armed, he came in there unarmed. And National Geographic and even a lot of commenters on videos that I've seen about this 
are basically saying that he was not invited there. He was going in there, uh, invading their territory and uh, blah, 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 you know. And it's like they want to defend this group. And something I was thinking about is the same people probably want open borders in America where they, you know, they don't want, uh, uh, what do you call it, um, strict guidelines for um, becoming an American citizen and doing things the legal way and said they want to give amnesty to people. Um, so it's it's kind of like not very, um, what do you call it, consistent <laughs> the way that they think. Um, and, I, you know, I'm just make you know, first of all, I want to say that I don't know the individuals that are making these comments or National Geographic's view on border security in America. But um, if they are consistent, they would have the same view about American border you know, as well. But um, anyway, I just thought that was interesting how the secular view of missionary work is very um, negative, which is sad, but it's also expected. I mean, Jesus promised that his people would be persecuted. So that's what we have to say. I mean, we've been pretty blessed in the West, but um the West has been changing to an anti-Christian culture. So I don't think it's a, uh, you know, a surprise. <laughs> but um, it's only a surprise to us in the West because we've been so used to having a Christian-friendly culture for so long, and that's changing. So anyway, I just wanted to talk a little bit about that. But also... Um, Leading into this topic for the day, which is the final judgment um, and the new heavens and new earth, and this is the end of the Bible study series that I'm doing, um, there's something that's been going around the last couple of years. Um, I only heard about it in the last few months. I may have heard about it, you know, a while back, but it didn't really, I didn't pay much attention to it, but I finally got the gist of what they were saying, but it's basically a um, known as Tartaria. I'm sure some of you have heard of that. There's videos about it and this concept that there was this global kingdom that was peaceful and the current um, historian or the elite today are, have written it out of our history. Now, that's one of those things that I don't think you can prove unless, you know, they don't really show, they show some like, uh, like the eye they say is supposed to be an eye instead of a one. So it's like I 639, uh, which historians say is 1639 or whatever. And they say that a thousand years have been added to our timeline or something like that. <clears throat> um, there's just some weird things that they say, but uh, most of their quote unquote evidence is basically saying that they erased our evidence. So th that's not really evidence. That's just saying, that's just a theory, I guess. But the reason I wanted to bring this up, uh, if we go back to the last episode where I talked about the millennium and then the release of Satan at the end of the millennium, 
I've seen several videos where they're saying that we are in that time now, that the millennium came and went, that Jesus came and had his thousand-year reign, and we are now in the post-millennium period where Satan is uh, deceiving. Now, <clears throat> there is a post-mill view that believes we're in the millennium now, um, I guess, or Amil. So if, if you believe that view, you, you know, it, it's somewhat believable. But what this group is saying is that, uh, I guess the, the, these people are saying is that there's actually a thousand years of peace that has been rewritten as the dark ages by the modern elite or whatever. And that Jesus actually returned to earth for a thousand years. And then I guess they left they departed so we're now in the time of deception and we're the ones left behind but we still have an opportunity to get saved or whatever um to me the part about jesus having returned because uh, they they believe the bible says that jesus would return in the first century or in that generation which i don't believe that's what it says and that's why a lot of people are post mill or all mill but i don't think it says that um some of the verses they use, and I've talked about this in past episodes, is that this gen in Matthew 24, Jesus says, this generation shall not come to pass till all these things take place. And uh, I think that's in context talking about the generation that sees these things, because the very next verses is the parable of the fig tree <clears throat> that says, when you see the leaves on the fig tree, you know that spring, summer is nigh and right at the gates. Likewise, when you see these things take place, you know that uh, the coming of the Lord is is near. And uh, I think that's the context of that phrase, this generation shall not come to pass. Now, there's another passage somewhere that talks about there's some of you standing here that shall not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming or appearing in the clouds. Now, that's a little tougher one, I admit. Um, <clears throat> but I would say that John, the, that John, the Apostle John, who wrote Revelation, saw a vision. And there was also a martyr, I think it was Stephen, who was being stoned. And because he was a Christian and he looked up and he saw uh, the Lord in the heavens. <clears throat> and um, so I, I think that could be an explanation for that as well. So you can say, yes, they did see. And it was like their spiritual eyes were opened for those things. And it wasn't something that everybody saw. Um, <clears throat> and uh, I think it's important to know that like... For example, in Revelation 19, where the Son of Man appears in the clouds, it uh, is it Revelation 19. Uh, I'm trying to remember where it is that it says every, all the the kings of the earth shall mourn. You know, and uh, in Revelation in, in um, 70 A.D., I don't think that was the case. God used the Romans to judge Israel for sure, but or Judea, and you know. Um, but anyway, so I, I'm not sure like where that idea came from. It seems like a recent idea with Tartaria and that we've passed the millennium period and that we're in the, uh, what do you call it? The, 
we're in that period now where uh, Satan is deceiving, which I think we are, but I don't think he's been cast into the bottomless pit yet. I think what they're saying is that Satan's been released already, and he's already been cast in the bottomless pit and, it, and all that. So anyway, I'm sure some of you have seen that, and I wanted to touch on that real quick because it kind of relates to this topic. But personally, I do not believe that we have entered the millennium yet, as most pre-mill uh, views do. So, <clears throat> anyway, so today we're going to focus mostly on Revelation 20 through um, the second half of Revelation 20 and the chapters following. And... Um, and so I hope that, and this is the end of the story. This is where, you know, a lot of people see Revelation as very scary, but we have to understand how it ends, how the story ends, that Jesus wins, that evil will all be dealt with, and there will be no more sin, no more death, etc. We're going to look at some of these passages here. Okay, so... So in the last chapter, we talked about the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ, and then the release of Satan at the end of that in the Gog-Magog War. And now we're going to look at, starting at Revelation 20, verse 11, it says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who, sat, who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead and were in them and who were uh, the dead who were in them and they were judged each of them according to what they had done then death and hades were thrown into the lake of fire this is the second death the lake of fire and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life he was thrown into the lake of fire now I think I did an episode on the three views on hell, and I'm not sure how uh, clear I made the view that I made, but or that I I believe in. Um, most Christians, and the way I was brought up, believe in eternal conscious torment. That is, that the lost will suffer eternally in consciousness uh, forever in the lake of fire. Uh, I have since changed that view, and I've talked about the other two views. There's universalism, which I would say the only way that's possible is if, A, everyone comes to Christ uh, before they die, or B, there really is no deadline. I heard somebody else, I'm not sure if this was before or after I made that episode, but I had a t discussion with a friend who is a universalist, and... I asked him if he thought the lake of fire was uh, literal or or what, like, um, and he said no. He said yes. He does believe it's literal, 
but he he believes basically that there's no deadline to call out to Christ, um, which I thought was interesting, and I had to think about that. Um, the only verse that people point to is the one that said, um, uh, what is it? There's a verse that says um, that we have given once to die and then the judgment. And I thought, well, yeah, that's true. There is a judgment and everyone's going, you know, appointed to death at some point, unless you're raptured or whatever. Um, but I was thinking about that and I was like, well, aren't there people today that die and get another chance that like I've heard testimonies of people who say that they went to hell and then God gave them another chance and they were resurrected from the dead and they got saved. And I was thinking about that and I don't think any Christian that I know of has a problem with that idea. Now they're not a hundred percent sure that each of these testimonies are true. They could be made up, but theologically nobody has an issue with that. And if that's the case, if they are all resurrected again at the final judgment, as it says here, where it says um, in verse 12, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Now, is do they get another chance there, is the question. And... Um, and I'm trying to think, is it the next chapter that says every knee shall bow and tongue confess? Um, well, we'll see. I'm going to read 21 here in a bit. But there is a verse that says every knee shall bow and tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And some suggest that that's when like everyone gets saved at that point. <laughs> But then it seems to suggest that some will be cast a lake of fire and that people will be judged according to their works. Although, I kind of wonder because some people point at this and say, see, you have to have good works to be saved. But the thing about it is, if you are in Christ, you're not judged by your works. You're judged by your faith in Christ, that he took care of it on the cross. But... Then there is a passage somewhere that talks about the believers who um, will lose much. They will lose much, but they themselves will will survive. And I think that's talking about believers, kind of like a, a refiner's fire for believers, that our works will be tested, but we will have eternal life. Um, but anyway, um, anyway, I talked a little bit about that in the episode on the three views on hell, but I wanted to get a little bit more detailed on what I believe. So there is one view of the, I haven't defined it yet, annihilation or conditional immortality that the souls of the, that are not written in the book of life will simply be killed. They will die and cease to exist in the lake of fire. Their souls will be killed. Now, one of the common views on that is that there's either life or death and there's nothing else. And I don't believe that, so I wanted to explain kind of what I think. And so, in other words, I don't believe that you you have soul sleep 
um, or anything like that while you're waiting for the final judgment. What I do think is that man is made up of three parts, uh, body, soul, and spirit. And the reason I think this is because, number one, uh, in John chapter 3, and I'll go ahead and uh, look at that real quick. Um, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, who's asking him questions. And specifically, there's a verse that says, and I wanted to find the exact verse so you can look it up yourself. Okay. Uh, sorry, I'm having trouble with these pages here. All right. John chapter 3. He's talking about being born again. Um, and where does it say that? Okay. I'll just start at the beginning of John chapter 3. Now, there was a man in the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is, is spirit. Okay, so that passage shows to me, and the Bible doesn't get really deep or doesn't say a whole lot about this, but this chapter is what convinces me that there is a part of humanity that is a spirit and a part of humanity that is flesh. Now, I believe that when Adam sinned, that we inherited a dead spirit. So we were born spiritually dead, is what I believe. And so that part of us, you were born dead in the spirit. And then unless you're born spiritually, that is, uh, it, you know, the other part of, another part of humanity, you cannot have eternal life. And that's why I, I, I'm convinced that the spirit is not the flesh, and the flesh is not the spirit. And so that's another part of humanity. So, But like I said, unless you are born again, you do not have life in the spirit. You're dead spiritually. Now the other thing is the soul. Matthew ten twenty eight says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. <clears throat> Sorry, cannot kill the soul, Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And I'm going to talk about that word hell here in a second because the English translation translates several words into hell, and I'm going to get into that here in a minute. But this passage here tells me that there's this body and the soul. And I've heard some pastors say that the soul is immortal, but the Bible never says the soul is immortal. <laughs> In fact, here it says explicitly that God can destroy the soul. And I believe that's what happens in the lake of fire. So, 
Now I'm going to talk a little bit about different words that are translated as hell in the Bible and what I think they are and what the Bible talks about in regards to this. So I think there's two or three different locations um, that are all, you know, I think real places and some used, some are physical places used as an example. So let me look up those words here and we will talk about them. Okay, I'm going to go by the order that is given here in this website. Um, this is actually a document, and I just did a Google search for... Uh, the title of this is Words Translated as Hell. Um, and it says four different words are translated as hell in the King James Version. One in the Old Testament, and three in the New Testament. So the Old Testament word is Sheol. The New Testament words are Hades, Gehenna, and Tartarus. Uh, I also want to add one more Hebrew word. They don't mention here, but it's the Valley of... The Valley of... Uh, I don't remember. But it's the same place as Gehenna, but it's like name something else before. And I don't remember exactly. Um... So I'm going the order that they have these in. Tartarus. Uh, Tartarus is only mentioned once in the Bible, 2 Peter 2.4, where a verb from the word is translated as cast down to hell in the King James. 2 Peter 2.4. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. And uh, so it's telling us that this is not the final destination because they're being reserved unto judgment. So I think that they will be cast in the lake of fire at some point. And I'm not sure if Tartarus and Hades are the same thing or not. But um, uh, so this is an interesting passage, and that's the only passage that talks about Tartarus. And so it seems to indicate there's a that this might be the same waiting place for lost souls. I'm not sure. What does it say here? They have something here that says, however you interpret this verse, it gives no reason to think Tartarus has anything to do with humans or their judgment. While this and the following verses in Second Peter chapter 2 warn people not to think they can escape judgment, the passage gives no indication that judgment will be there. There is no reason but tradition to think Tartarus should be translated as hell. But it is clear in the verse that it says they are there to be reserved unto judgment. So it's not the final judgment. It is where they are in a waiting place, I guess. The next word here is Sheol. The word Sheol is used in the Old Testament 65 times. The King James Version translates it as grave 31 times, hell 31 times, and pit 3 times. Can you imagine the same word being translated as both grave and hell? Today, no 
widely used English version of the Bible ever translates Sheol as hell, except the King James Version and the New King James Version. But it's usage to see that Sheol was considered the place or state of all the dead, whether they were good or bad, when used figuratively, it could mean the consequences of wickedness, the present world likened to death. To the Hebrew mind, Sheol was the unknown place all people go after to simply equate it with the grave is probably not sufficient. There is another Hebrew word for grave. Also, uh, Jacob said he would go to Sheol where, he's, where his son Joseph was. Yet he had been told that Joseph was eaten by a wild animal, so did not Joseph so he did not think Joseph was in a grave. Jesus was Jesus said in Matthew eight eleven that Jacob will still sorry, Jacob will feast in the kingdom of heaven, so Jacob did not end up in a place of torment or separation from God after his death. Therefore, Sheol, as used for the first time in the Bible by Jacob, could not have our meaning of hell. Sheol is spoken of in the Bible as a place of punishment after death. In fact, it's spoken of as a realm of unconsciousness in Psalms 6.5, Isaiah 38.18, and, and Ecclesiastes 9.10. Job even explained expressed a desire to go to Sheol in Job 14.13. Now, I want to look at these verses to make sure it says specifically that it's a realm of unconsciousness before I continue, because that would change my view as well. Um, and it, may, it would make me question what I thought, because I want to be accurate biblically. All right, Psalm... The first one here is Psalm 6-5. Because sometimes people will say, <coughs> excuse me, they'll add things to Scripture that aren't there. You know, they'll put their own commentary on it. <coughs> but I want to make sure. Psalms 6, verse 5. These pages are stuck together here. It says, For in death there is no remembrance of you, in Sheol, you will give, who will give you praise? This does not say that the dead are unconscious. <laughs> it says that there's no memory of them. So when people die, they tend to be forgotten, is what that verse says. <coughs> Excuse me. The next one is that they listed here. Isaiah 38:18 And uh, I just want to be clear because sometimes people can say this verse says this and then I look at it and it doesn't say what they say it says. And that one that first one definitely didn't say that people were unconscious in Sheol. So um Isaiah 38:18 Just a couple more pages here. Uh, okay. 
It says, For Sheol does not thank you, death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. The living is living, he thanks you, as I do this day. The Father makes known to the children your faithfulness. Let me read the previous verse. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness, but in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. For Sheol does not thank you, death does not praise you, those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. Um, I don't see any indication there that they are unconscious. <laughs> so I'm <clears throat> just being honest here. Now, some of you are wondering, if I don't think they're unconscious, how do I believe in uh, annihilation? Well, I'll get to that. I'm just looking at these verses that were listed here. Ecclesiastes 9.10. <clears throat> Let's see. You know what? I'm going to, rather than... Rather than um, flip through my book here, I'm just going to, okay, Ecclesiastes, come on, Ecclesiastes, I wish this would show up on my, come on. I think it's, what does it say, 19? Now I can't find it. Sorry. Now I can't find the... Here it is. Come on. Ecclesiastes 19, or sorry, 9, 10. <clears throat> okay. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 10 says... Whatsoever thy find thy hand findeth to do, do it with, with thy might, for there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave whither thou goest. It says whatever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might, for there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave whither thou goest. Now this is the strongest verse so far for that concept. Um, no device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. Okay. So that one's a, a bit stronger of a verse. But I'm going to check the next one here that they gave. Job even expressed a, a desire to go to Sheol. Now, it is clear because J Joseph went to Sheol, and it seems to indicate that everyone goes to Sheol in the old, you know, whatever Sheol is. Um, and so I have a thought about that as well, and I'll get to that, but, um, so the word Sheol cannot be a place of punishment or torment as, as it is used to designate the place where the righteous dead are. Clearly, Sheol cannot have the modern meaning of hell. Now, I will say that I think there's two sides of Sheol, a side of paradise and a side of torment and I'll get to that in a minute 
but I also do not think this is the lake of fire. I think that's separate, but I'll keep going here. Hades. This is a Greek word. Hades is found 11 times in the Greek New Testament. The King James Version uh, translated 10 times as hell and one time as grave. Hades seems to have the same meaning as the Old Testament word Sheol. The Septuagint is the Greek version of the Old Testament, which was the commonly accepted Bible used during the ministry of Jesus. Now, this is according to what they're saying here. I'm not 100% sure that's true, but anyway. Um, and the early years of the church. The Septuagint uses Hades to translate Sheol. This makes it very clear that in Jesus' day, the Hebrew word Sheol and the Greek word Hades had a very similar meaning, or sorry, very similar, if not the same meaning. The New Testament follows the Septuagint in translating, uh, this thing is, uh, this thing messed up on me here. Um, the New Testament follows in translating Sheol as Hades, as can be seen by comparing Acts 2.27 with Psalm 16.10. I'll let you look those up yourself. Hades comes from two words, the first word meaning not, and the second one meaning to see. So Hades originally meant the unseen or what is concealed. Originally, the English word hell also only meant something that was secret or concealed. So in 1611, when the King James Version was translated hell, may have been a good translation for the Greek word Hades and his Hebrew equivalent Sheol. But as we all know, the meaning of hell today is very different. It would seem that Hades means more than death or the grave in the New Testament because there are other Greek words used for those terms. Of course, a language can have more than one word with the same meaning. We call them synonyms. Whatever Hades means, it will not last forever, for Revelation 20.13 shows both death and Hades will, be, will give up their occupants. Revelation 20.14 seems to indicate Hades will be destroyed. Um, let me look at that verse real quick just to double check because I think he's right because I've read this passage many times. Uh, Revelation 20 verse 14 says, And death and hell, that word is Hades, were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Okay. Yeah, and I think that's right. I think he's correct, or whoever wrote this is correct on that. Okay. Revelation 20.14 seems to indicate Hades will be destroyed. It says that death and Hades will be cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death. And I think the second death is the death of the soul. The verse seems to be saying this will be the end of both death and Hades, which is what Hosea 13.14 prophesied 
the destruction of Sheol, Hades, and death. 1 Corinthians 15.55 also quotes from the Septuagint translation of Hosea 13.14, where Hades' destruction is prophesied, therefore Hades is temporary. So the rich man of Luke 16, being in Hades, was in a place of only temporary detention. Now I'm going to get into this, the rich man and the and Lazarus here in a second, because that's the next part I was going to get to um, of what I think Sheol slash Hades is. And, um, but I'm going to finish these words for hell that are translated as hell in the Bible. Jesus said in Revelation 1.18 that he now has the keys of Hades and death. So no one who calls on Jesus must remain imprisoned by either of them. Well, that was his commentary. I don't know if that's what that says, but anyway. Gehenna. The Greek word Gehenna, also spelled Gina, occurs 12 times in the New Testament and is always translated hell in the King James Version. The word is used only one time in the New Testament outside of the first three Gospels in James 3.6, where it is used metaphorically about the harm caused by a vile human tongue. Whether Gehenna was used by Jesus, oops, what happened? Sorry, this thing threw me off. Okay. Where Gehenna was used by Jesus to typify what a true hell is like may be debated. What is beyond debate is that Gehenna was a known place on the south side of Jerusalem familiar to all who heard Jesus speak. The word Gehenna... Uh, is the Greek spelling of the Hebrew words go himam, meaning valley of the hinnom. A quick search of the con concordance for the word hinnom. So that was what I was trying to think of, valley of hinnom. Um, so that's a physical plane that Jesus used as an example for hell. Um, now, if you recall the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, it says that the rich man was taken to a place of torment and Lazarus to a place of uh, paradise, basically, or Abraham's bosom is what it's called there. Jesus also told the thief on the cross that he would be with him in paradise today. So, again, these are not embodied people. These are uh, souls. Um, and so this... It's clear to me this is not the eternal state. This is a waiting place for the dead until the final judgment. That's what I believe. And then at the in Revelation 20, they're either given um, bodies for eternal life or they are cast in a lake of fire and their souls are killed and they cease to exist, which is my view on this. So... That's just kind of a clarification of what I think. And um, I, I think there's some strong biblical argument for that. Um, I will say, if you are interested in finding a Bible, um, either look up the interlinear, which will give you the exact words for 
that are translated as hell. But there's also the young, uh, let's see, it's called the Young's Literal Translation. It was a 19th century translation that is very word for word. And it doesn't, tra- it, it, the word hell is not in it. Instead, it just says Sheol, Hades, Gehenna, etc. So I would recommend that Bible if you're interested in studying this subject further. Okay, so I'm going to f- uh, do a song here now before we get to the conclusion, the good news, the what we are all waiting for to get rid of evil and, and death and everything. But here's the song for the day. It's by Carmen. It's called The Courtroom. If tonight you stood in heaven's court to seek eternal favor, would you face Jesus Christ as judge or would you face him as your savior? There are many who don't quite know for sure what that verdict would be, if ever. So let's imagine for a moment you're standing dead center in the courtroom of forever. Sitting before you is a structure, massive and intense. It's here your fate will be determined, before this judge's bench. Then a voice booms, this court's now in session, and your adrenaline starts to rush. Peering down with eyes that see through your soul, is God the Father, your judge. left across the room is the virtual silhouette of sin. Stepping out of the shadows of condemnation, your worst nightmare walks in. On his face is the smirk of evil incarnate, his mind fixed on your destruction in hell. You've just been introduced to your prosecuting attorney, none other than Satan himself. The Bible says he's the accuser of the brethren, so guess what he's going to do. He's going to accuse you of your sins, and he knows them all, both the old ones and the new. He's prepared his case for years. Now the golden moment is his. So in arrogance, he presents his case to the judge, and it comes out sounding something like this. God, you worthless piece of trash over here. This one's a sinner to the core. This one's committed adultery, cursed his neighbor, stolen money, but into drugs, alcohol, and even more. This hopeless wretch has even slandered friends. And by that guilty face, this whole courtroom can tell that to a moral certainty and beyond any reasonable doubt, this one deserves eternal judgment in hell. of accusations still echo, your every sin thrown up in your face, and God opens the book where every deed is recorded and reviews your records of disgrace. God says, the book says you did this, this, and this, and everything you were accused of today. Now before I sentence you to hell forever, are there any last words you have to say? 
Now, if it's true you're standing there in the courtroom of eternity, with God to your front and Satan, the prosecutor, to your left, there's one remaining eternal truth, one that's crucial to remember, one you should never, ever, ever forget. That on the other side of the courtroom, I said, on the other side of the courtroom, you ain't hearing me tonight. I said on the other side of the courtroom is the one and only Son of God, revealed in time and space. And he's your defense attorney who has never lost a case. It's not Buddha, Muhammad, or Krishna, or any others who succumb to death. Ladies and gentlemen, on the other side of the courtroom is Jesus Christ of Nazareth! Then Jesus jumps up and says, wait a minute, Judge, now I've got something to say. May I remind you that on the cross 2,000 years ago, I washed his sins away. I was crucified, I died, they put me in a tomb. But long about the midnight hour, the power of God hit me and I walked out of that grave, alive and well with resurrection power. The devil says, it's in the book, it's written in the book, check the book. God said, okay. And then he takes the book out, lays it open and says, now we'll see what this book has to say. He turns to the first page, the second page, the third. By the fourth, the devil seems shook. God closes, it says, the blood of Jesus must have worked, because there's absolutely nothing in this book. The devil says, now wait a minute, check that book again. All the sins are written down, they're all right there. God said, the devil, maybe you're mistaken altogether. Maybe it's this other book down here. The devil cries, no, not that book, not that one. God said, devil, why are you so uptight? God sets the book down, the dust flies, and on the cover it says, the Lamb's Book of Life. Once again, that was Carmen, a song called The Courtroom. I hope you enjoyed that. So check out his stuff. He was really popular amongst youth groups back in the 80s and 90s. Some of his stuff is kind of cheesy, but I like his spoken word uh, stories, kind of like this one that we just listened to. Um, and so, yeah, I hope you enjoyed that, and it's related to the topic. So, all right, so we're going to continue by reading Revelation 21. 
and uh, uh, we're almost at an hour, so there's not going to be much left on this episode, but I think we'll get to the, the point here. So this is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, and, you know, there's verses, I'm not going to look up all these verses, but there's verses that say things, one of my favorite verses is, it's not in this chapter, but it's, this present suffering is not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. You know, um, and so that's a really good uh, verse. Um, but here we are. Let me just read Revelation 21. So this is right after the death in Hades being cast in a lake of fire on all that were, were in them. And then it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more and i saw the holy city new jerusalem coming down out of heaven from god prepared as a bride adorned for her husband and i heard a loud voice from the throne saying behold the dwelling place of god is with man he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Um, now, I want to reiterate, this is one of the passages that convinced me of annihilation, where it says there will be no more death, uh, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. Now, some and and I think this is a legitimate argument to say that those who believe in eternal conscious torment could say that this is just talking about the new heavens and new earth and not the lake of fire or wherever they are. So I think that's a legitimate argument. Um, but anyway, but I don't think it's, it's also a legitimate argument to say that this is universally true that, Either you're alive or you're dead. And if you're dead, um, see, here's the problem. It says he shall, he's, uh, says death shall be no more. Now their definition of death is separation from God, which means that they would say that death exists eternally. But if you say that the death of the body, the soul and the spirit, you know, the spirit, I don't think they were ever alive to begin with, but if they are dead, they no longer exist. And if they no longer exist, then death doesn't continue to exist, if that makes sense. And so I just wanted to uh, point that out. Um, verse 5, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Man, that would be nice. <laughs> 
The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexual immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, uh, with, with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So it tells us what that is, which I believe is the death of the soul, as I said before, because Jesus said, fear him who can kill the soul, not just the body. Verse 9, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance, It's a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Now, I want to state this here in a second, because the Jerusalem that we have here now is not this Jerusalem, obviously, because this one comes out of heaven. The Jerusalem that's on earth now, I guess you could say, was built thousands of years ago, which God used for his people. Um. But this is not the same Jerusalem here. It's the new Jerusalem, I guess. And it's on the new earth. So it's not going to be on this earth anyway. Uh, Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. Um, It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels And on the gates, the gates of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And I want to quickly iterate, because we talked about this before, how we've been grafted in, the Gentiles were grafted in to God's promise, and also that not all Israel is Israel. Only those of Israel that had faith are of Israel. Um, So when it says all of Israel will be saved, I believe it's all those who have faith are of Israel. (laughs) And so... Um, we will be adopted into this promise for the 12 tribes, I believe. On the east, uh, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. (coughs) And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod and he gets into the measurements, and I won't get into all that. You can read it yourself. Um, the measurements of all this stuff. Um, and I saw no... T- I'm going to skip to 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Interesting. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no more night there (coughs) excuse me 
<coughs> they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Chapter 22. I'll go ahead and keep reading. We're a little past an hour, but that's okay. Then the angel showed me the river of, of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will, will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need, need no lamp, light of the lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brother, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I'm coming soon. Now, a lot of people look at this, these verses here and say that this is a proof of eternal conscious torment because they will still be evil and still be filthy forever. But I think this is going back to the present of John's day because I think he's, um, he's, he's, uh, he talked about all that, the new heavens and new earth, and now he's going back to talking about the current place and what we're looking forward to. So um, that's what I think he's saying there. <coughs> Excuse me. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with him to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So he, he goes on to say he's going to repay them. So those who are filthy now, those who are unrighteous, those who are good, those who are evil, um, all that will be taken care of and, and repaid at the appropriate time. Verse 13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. <clears throat> Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city. By, by the gates, 
Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Interesting there. Um, it says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things. For the churches, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Now, you could look at that and say, outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, and the sexually immoral, and the murderers, and idolaters. Um, could that mean the outside the gates, meaning they still are in existence, you know, or could it mean that they, that they uh, are outside of the new heavens and new earth, they're outside of life? I don't know. So that's, that's one that you could use as eternal conscious torment to say that they still exist outside the gates. Um, hmm, that's interesting. Uh, but are they, but are they on the new heaven and new earth? <laughs> I don't know. That's, um, anyway, the spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears say, come and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Anyway, there is some, in, uh, I guess you could say, mysterious stuff here. Um, seems to indicate that there are sinners outside the gates. Um which would suggest that there are sinners on the new heaven and new earth, unless he's talking about <clears throat> the millennium there again. That's a possibility, because I do think there will be sinners outside the gates during the millennium. So maybe that's what that's referring to. Um, it doesn't really say when this is. Um, that he's talking about, let's see, I, John, the one who heard and saw these things. Um, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life. So, um, like I said, a lot of chapter 22 is talking about the coming of the Lord. So it's not necessarily talking about the new heavens and new earth all the way through here. It could be talking about different times. But that part there sounds like the millennium outside the dogs and sorcerers and sexual immorality and murderers and idolaters. That could be talking about the millennium. Because I don't even think that those who believe in eternal torment would say that the lost are on the new heavens and new earth. That they would be in some remote location. I don't know. So that's one of those things that I have to be honest and say, I don't know 
everything <laughs> and I'm probably I'm not even claiming to be right about everything in my views so I'm just giving some commentary but I'm I'm being careful to read directly from the Bible and not change anything that it says um so anyway all right thank you all and have a wonderful day this is the most awesomest podcast of all time i'm your host rob hendrick this podcast is brought to you by proverbs 16 18 rob going for instructions